Good evening. Um, thank you for joining us for Net203. My name is Peter Dalbunjan. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a solutions architect who work for Amazon Web Services. And here with me, I have Jeff and Kit. You guys want to introduce yourself? Capital One, where we do a lot of our VPC and low-level automation, as well as containerization work. Hi, I'm Kit Eubank. I'm a software engineer on Jeff's team. All right, cool. So we'll be covering from EC2 to ECS, how Capital One uses application load balancer features to serve traffic at scale. So here's what to expect from the session. Uh, we will cover, at a high level, we'll cover uh, classic load balancer as well as application load balancer features. And then we'll talk about how Capital One uses load balancers to serve their applications. And lastly, we will cover um, their container journey. And we'll talk about how application load balancer features um, improve their container journey. So before we talk about the um, the features, I just want to spend a minute or so to talk about what the ELB service is. Um, so if you're new to AWS, ELB is a managed service, and what it does is it offers you a software load balancer to automatically distribute your incoming application traffic for, uh, for, your, multi for your EC2 instances. So before, I think we announced this service around 2009, um, and before we had the service, customers used like a third-party load balancer or they just directly sent the, uh, you know, they installed the application on EC2 and then had the users go directly to, to these applications on EC2. Now, it doesn't take much to realize that this kind of an architecture doesn't really work well in production. Uh, from availability point of view, you're pretty much limited to the uh, uptime of that e instance. Uh, if that EC2 instance dies, then your application has a downtime. Um, and from scalability point of view, you're pretty much limited to what that EC2 instance is capable of doing, how much resources you, you have on that EC2. So um, classic load balancer is, is a, a key component of ELB service. So at a high level, you have ELB as a managed service. And then you have classic load balancer, uh, and the second component that we announced, uh, I think around 2009, during the New York summit, was the application load balancer. Um, and uh, classic load balancer is one of the components, right? So classic load balancer gives you uh, that simple load balancing of application traffic across multiple EC2 instances. Um, you can choose to configure your listeners to be either layer four or layer seven. Uh, and when I talk about layers, I'm talking about the OSI model. Um, so you can configure at layer seven, which is the application traffic. You can do it at uh, HTTP or HTTPS. Uh, and if you choose to do uh, layer four, then you're probably doing TCP or SSL. That's the listener configuration. So a couple of uh, callouts here. Um, if you're using uh, TCP, then each connections that your client makes is bound to the socket connection of the backend EC2 instance. Uh, whereas if you use HTTP, then we use connection pooling at the ELB layer in order to serve those connections. 
Um, another callout is, uh, you know, if you use TCP, then we use round robin algorithm in order to distribute the traffic to your backend instance. Uh, whereas if you use HTTP, then we use least outstanding requests. Um, another thing to note is uh, because ELB works as, uh, as a proxy for all of your incoming requests, your application will probably see the IPs that the ELB is making to, those, to your application. But if you have a use case where you want to determine your, your client IPs or the real IPs that the that your users are using, maybe to target certain piece of content to a specific set of users in a, in a geography, uh, or in the case of DOS, you want to limit the number of connections that the, that the users are making, then you can turn on a feature called exported for uh, in terms of HTTP, um, or else you can turn on a proxy protocol in TCP mode. So that's something that you want to keep an eye on and turn on if you want to determine the uh, real IPs. So application load balancer, that's the, uh, uh, that's the feature that we announced during the New York Summit. And what it does is it works at uh, layer seven, right? So it's, it, it's at the application traffic of the OSI model. <coughs> and, um, and it supports content-based routing. So let's say if you have application one running on a couple of EC2 instances and application two running on the other set of instances, and if you wanted to serve your application, example.com slash app one to certain set versus uh, app two to the other set, then you can do that using a single ELB, right? You can go and configure target groups and then um, uh, send the right level of traffic to specific set of applications running on EC2. The other uh, features that uh, I want to call out is you can also, uh, it also supports WebSockets and HTTP2. So if you have applications that needs WebSockets or HTTP2 support, uh, you can take advantage of application load balancer. Also, if you are building microservices, uh, and if you're leveraging uh, the EC2 container service uh, in order to deploy your Docker containers, uh, one feature that you get from application load balancer is the dynamic host port mapping. Um, so before in the world of uh, ALB, these, you, know, you, you had to go and define your host port, your container port, um, and uh, you were pretty much limited to running a single service on, on a single host, on a cluster. But with the capability of you know, Docker's dynamic port mapping, uh, it, it integrates directly with application load balancer, and you can specify which container port you're using, uh, and it works very well. It's all integrated. It's a managed service. So uh, certainly take advantage of it. We will go into uh, pretty good depth later in the, uh, uh, in the slides when we talk about the container journey. So here are a few features at a glance. Um, what I'll do is I'll cover uh, the first half, the, the you know, I'll cover the health checks, idle timeouts, and cross zone. I already talked about uh, path-based routing. And I let uh, Kit and Jeff talk about the other uh, feature sets as, they, as we move along. So let's uh, take a look at what health check is. Um, so health check is, is a pretty important feature, right? Uh, if you want to let your users access your application, you want to make sure that that application is live. Um, and ELB supports TCP and HTTP health checks. 
you can customize the frequency and failure thresholds. You can say you know, how frequent you want to do those health checks. Um, and also, you know, if the health check fails, you can say, you know, I want to health check status to go from green to red uh, or unavailable uh, when it crosses a certain threshold. Uh, another thing to note here is this feature works very well with auto scaling group. So if you have uh, your applications that are using auto scaling and then if they are scaling based on demand, uh, if they're an addition of an instance due to a scale out event, then you can configure your uh, ELB service in order to check those health checks. So when that instance comes up, it bootstrap the application, then it uh, health checks determines that it's, it's, uh, the application is live, then the ELB service can start sending the traffic. So it works very well with health check. Another feature that you'll be, uh, you'll be configuring is the connection draining. So if there is a scale-in event, so we just spoke about the scale-out event, so if there's a scale-in event where the instance is getting removed of the auto-scaling pool, then the ELB will go and drain all the connections, make sure that there's no connection on that instance, and then that instance can be taken away from the auto-scaling group. So all of this works automatic. It's just an API. Just go in and configure it, and it works well. Oh, so idle timeouts is the length of um, the time idle connections should be kept open. So the default here is 60 seconds, but you can configure it to go up to 60 minutes. And the best practice here is to use, uh, is to have idle timeouts decrease as you go down the stack. So if you're looking at this uh, architecture, uh, what we have is the uh, idle timeout configured between client and the ELB as 15 seconds, and then ELB to EC2. Then you'll see a smaller amount of idle timeouts as you go down the stack. Now this is to prevent uh, good resources that are in the back end, right? So you don't want to overwhelm them with uh, too many connections keeping idle. So understanding your idle timeouts, your client timeouts is therefore uh, pretty important. Now cross-zone load balancing uh, is another uh, key feature of uh, ELB. Uh, what it does is it distributes incoming requests evenly across multiple availability zones. So one of the best practices in AWS is to make sure that your applications are running uh, in multiple availability zones. So if you go and enable this feature, uh, for whatever reason, if your instances are not properly sized or if you have too many instances in one AZ the other, uh, than the other, maybe to take advantage of RIs, if you go and enable cross-zone uh, load balancing, what this feature will do is it will eliminate imbalances in backend instance utilization. <coughs> Another thing to note here is there is no additional charge for cross-zone traffic. So um, those were the features I wanted to cover. And like I said, I already covered the path-based routing. Uh, what I'll do is I'll invite Kit Eubank, who will come over and talk about how they use load balancing in Capital One, and then we'll cover uh, their container journey later on. Okay. Thank you, Peter. So Capital One, we love load balancers. We are running hundreds and hundreds of load balancers. Why? 
because load balancing is a critical component of any scalable distributed modern system. Done well, load balancing is going to reduce latency and increase resilience by dynamically distributing load across a number of backends. In traditional monolithic apps, this logic would have been in the app itself. You'd have to code it yourself with custom logic, or you'd pull in a third-party library. Um, as the application's architectures progress to a modern microservices model, moving this logic out of each app and into the underlying infrastructure becomes increasingly important. Each app should not be managing its own load balancing logic. At Capital One, we design all our new systems as API first. Really, they're API only. So, for example, our new servicing website is a single-page Angular app talking to APIs implemented in the cloud. All our mobile apps are native apps talking to APIs implemented in the cloud. So we have hundreds of APIs using HTTP and REST everywhere. And these API implementations are technology agnostic. Each team can choose its own tech stack. So then all communication between the apps and APIs is via, is via APIs. So this requires us to use load balancing as a service so that load balancing becomes a deployment concern, not the application developer's concern. And using ELB service gives us great integration with other AWS services, such as order scaling groups and ECS services, effectively for free. So right now, we're using load balances everywhere in a number of different architectures. Our traditional monolithic apps are implemented using classic load balancers in front of auto-scaling groups and EC2 instances. And we're going to moving some of those to microservices, ECS. And as you're going to find out in the rest of the presentation, we're moving to using ALBs everywhere. So let's walk through how ALBs greatly simplify deployment of a standard pattern we use. We have a single API endpoint, which fronts a number of different services. And something in the URL path, usually the first segment, is going to distinguish between different services that are offered by that API. So traditionally, we've implemented this with two levels of classic load balancers. The first load balancer balances to a pool of EC2 instances and an order scaling group running a software HTTP proxy, something like Apache with mod proxy. And that proxy software balances or directs loads to a second tier of load balancers that front the microservices themselves. The, the advantage here is that we can scale each of those autoscaling groups or the microservices independently. But what do we have to manage for this setup? Well, we've got to manage two sets of classic load balancers. For the software proxy, we have to manage the autoscaling group and the associated EC2 instances. We have to provision those EC2 instances with an OS. We have to set up logging. We have to set up monitoring. We have to secure those EC2 instances. And of course, we have to patch them throughout their life cycle. And then we have the actual software running on those EC2 instances. We have to set up and install the Apache proxy. We have to worry about patch patching that proxy. And of course, there are all the various configurations and rules for the proxy that we have to manage as well. And of course, all of this has a cost. There's an operational cost, of course there are AWS costs, and they're going to be performance costs. But we can replace the whole of this with an ALB. So as Peter mentioned, an ALB acts at layer seven and can route based on HTTP features 
for example, the URL. So we get to replace the whole of the classic load balancer and software proxy with a single ALB, and it will route to the backend service based on the URL path. And what do we have to manage here? Really nothing. The only thing we have to worry about is the technology called the ALB target group, and that's all done with API calls. So what is a target group? The details are in the name. It's a group of targets. Okay, so what's a target? So a target is anything that's going to receive communication traffic. For example, an instance, or an auto-scaling group, or an ECS service. Uh, the important thing is that the targets dynamically register with the target group, so that you as the application developer don't have to do anything. The auto-scaling group or the ECS service automatically takes care of registering with the target group. As I said, there are different routes for each target group, and the target groups are monitored independently. So let's go through an example. Um, traffic comes into a load balancer, and then based on the port and the proxy, port and the protocol, it's routed to a listener. For example, port 80 HTTPS here is going to route to a left-hand listener. Um, there are a set of rules associated with the listener. And these rules are responsible for routing traffic to the various target groups containing the target instances. So the rules use pass-based matching with regular expressions, with patterns, to determine which target group to route traffic to. In case of multiple patterns matching the path, the rules have priority, and the lower priority rules are evaluated and matched first. And if no rules match, you always have to have a default rule so that the traffic is going to end up somewhere. So for example, here, the first request is headed for slash credit card, and it gets routed to the left-hand target group. Second request, slash mortgage, gets routed to the right-hand target group. And a third request, HHB import 8080, goes to the right-hand listener. No rules are set up, and we use the default rule. So that's just one example of using target groups. They become a lot more powerful when we use them in conjunction with ECS services. Talk about Capital One's container journey. I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Jeff Story. So by a quick show of hands here, who is actually using containers in production? Okay. Is anybody already using the ALB features? Okay, so there's a lot of different reasons why people go to containers. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about why we went to containers first, and then we'll dive into the technology of how it actually works and our journey from going to the classic load balancers to the new application load balancers. Uh, so a couple of years ago, we started moving into AWS. But before that, we were not what I would call a developer-friendly culture. Uh, so if you needed to request a server, you had to fill out a work order, submit it to some team who would provision it. Maybe two weeks later, you would get that server. Then you needed Tomcat installed on there. And you really didn't have many other choices other than Java, WebLogic, uh, Tomcat applications. And this whole process would take a couple of weeks. And then if you wanted another server, same process over and over again. Um, as we moved to cloud, that really got a lot simpler. And containers made that even much simpler. 
So a, a lot of us talk about the cost savings we get with containers in terms of we reduce the footprints of our hosts, so it means we're running way fewer hosts. Uh, and But where I think the real cost savings come in are in your developer uh, savings, developer time savings. We can deploy things in seconds, not minutes. We can explore a lot of different languages. So while we are primarily still Java heavy at Capital One, we have a variety of languages that have popped up across our enterprise on different teams. We're using, using Python, Go, Scala, um, just a variety of technologies that is, containers have made this much easier because we can just experiment, launch containers, and tear them down very quickly. So as a whole, our movement to cloud and containers have really helped Capital One become a much more developer-centric culture. So that's more on the, the cultural and process side. But now I want to talk about the technology of how we actually get containers to work. So while containers are nice for development, uh, you run, you create a Docker file, you launch it on your local host, maybe in Vagrant or VirtualBox, hit the local host, it's really easy. Uh, but then how does that get from your laptop into a production center? So the basic strat problem we're trying to solve, the orchestration problem, is traffic comes into a load balancer. Uh, and step two is something magic happens. And step three, traffic magically gets distributed to the containers. And we gloss over this a lot, but this is, as I think Andy put it, a lot of hand-waving and bombast. There, there's really a lot of work that needs to be done here. And there's a lot of frameworks. There's Kubernetes, Mesos, Swarm, Nomad, Rancher, uh, ECS, and a whole lot of other frameworks, and each have their own trade-offs. And the fact that there's so many of these orchestration frameworks means that this is a hard problem to solve. So we were in this interesting situation that I'm sure many of you have been in. We wanted to get into the container space, and ECS had come out fairly recently. ALBs were not out yet. We figured that at some point we'd come to reInvent, and Amazon would launch some services that made everything we were doing obsolete. Uh, but we had to do something and, and develop something in the meantime. So I want to talk about what we did and, and where we ended up. So the first thing we did was look at classic load balancers. So classic load balancers worked very well for us uh, when we were using traditional EC2 instances and auto-scaling groups. There was health check integration. Uh, instances would dynamically come up and down. You really didn't have to worry about that. Deployments, doing blue-green deployments, canary deployments, was a pretty easy thing to do with EC2 classic and, or EC2 instances and the, and the classic load balancers. CloudWatch integration, everything worked well. Um, so that's where we started for containers. But if you've used ELBs and ECS together, it, they just don't really work. Uh, this, was, this was our first crack at it, and Peter mentioned this before. Basically, you can't take advantage of any Docker features of port mapping and ephemeral mapping because uh, load balancers don't dynamically map to ports on the back end. So what you end up having to do is you select a port uh, for the host and select a port for the container, and you have to manage that mapping by yourself. Then you create a separate load balancer for each service. You specify which of the which of the ports that maps to. And I can see some head shaking here. So I feel like some people have probably gone through this pain a bit before. Uh, so the bottom line for us was this was an easy way to get started. We learned how ECS worked, but we learned this didn't work with ELBs. So this is what didn't work. Uh, but let's talk about what did work. So back to this problem of traffic coming in to the container to the host and having to get routed to the container somehow. Uh, so we, we did some research, and the ideas we came up with were to put a local proxy on each machine. So the local proxy here would be Nginx, and you can substitute in your favorite proxy here, whether it's HA proxy or something else. And the idea is that would understand how to route traffic to each of the containers. But that's just step one. We need to now tell Nginx how to actually get the traffic to the containers. So that's where Registrator comes in. 
If you've not used Registrator before, it's a Docker tool that will sit on your host and listen to various container events. So containers coming up, container going down, it'll understand metadata, health check information. So you can effectively build a registry of what containers are running where. And, but that information still has to get back to Nginx. So the next piece of this, console. So console is a key, distributed key value storage engine. Uh, even though it's drawn as a single node up here, I wrote console cluster. Uh, this is non-trivial to manage. It's multiple nodes trying to main some, maintain some sort of eventually consistent database of information uh, that we then have to manage and still get this information back into Nginx. So this is where the last piece comes in. This is a tool called console template. And console template will listen to events in console uh, to changes when containers come in, come down, and it, it can dynamically update uh, some of the configuration files in, in Nginx. So we're basically dynamically generating templates every time a new container comes up and down. So this is really non-trivial. So if you want to build a small cluster, these are all the components you need. You need to bootstrap Nginx, you need to bootstrap Registrator. You also have two, two methods of health checking. You have console that's actually doing the health checking of the containers. Uh, you have uh, ELBs doing the health checking of the hosts. You also have to manage your own connection draining. But we use this for a lot of our solutions. Before ALBs came out, this is what we were doing, and this is, this is what worked for us, so this, this is what we went with. Uh, so we tried to think about what are the hardest parts of this, again, still before ALBs, and we wanted to figure out how can we get away from at least managing the stateful part of this. So console is, is, was a lot of work for us, a team to manage. Uh, so this is where we tried a new approach, where we replaced console with Dynamo. Uh, so the architecture is generally similar here. We replaced console template with a tool called confd, which is something very similar. It reads from a back end and generates dynamic configuration files, which we use to populate Nginx. But we ran into a different set of problems here. So Dynamo has no TTLs for their keys. So if containers didn't get cleared out for some reason, uh, they would just sit there and Nginx wouldn't know that they've been removed. So that's where we then wrote a custom Lambda function that has to manage the Dynamo database and periodically clean up stale entries. Uh, now we have to introduce monitoring for our Lambda functions. So in the end, I don't think we really simplified things all that much. We just traded one set of problems for another. Uh, fortunately, it was about this time where application load balancers came out. So look at this picture here, and what does it look like with application load balancers? Much simpler. So where did all that glue code go? Well, our friends at AWS are managing it for us. So all those things are still happening somewhere in the background, but it's less complexity for us at Capital One as developers to manage. We get to focus on the application logic that we're good at, and we let AWS focus on the infrastructure where they're good at. Uh, so what happens is each application is now deployed as a target group. So Kit discussed how target groups work before, but these integrate very tightly with ECS services. So each ECS service can be deployed as a separate target group. So I deploy application one, it's one service group. Deploy application two, it's another service group. And then I simply tell the load balancer uh, which target groups are where. They, they dynamically register. Instances can come up and down. And, and the ELBs, or the ALBs and ECS take care of all this logic for us. It also handles connection draining. So now as containers are coming up and down, connections are properly drained. So this, this makes our life a whole lot easier. We still have some internal deployment tools that we use to manage the deployments of the actual cluster hosts as well as the ECS services and the ALBs. But as far as all the glue code go, we no longer have to write that ourselves. 
So uh, Peter touched on some of these features before, but I want to go back to auto-scaling here. So when we talked about uh, auto-scaling, we've all used auto-scaling with EC2 instances in the past, and we can auto-scale our container hosts the same way. We use CloudWatch alarms. When we need more capacity, we scale up the container hosts. But where the ECS scaling comes in is CloudWatch can also trigger scaling events independently on ECS services. So if you have one service that has to scale up because it needs more capacity, you can scale up that service independently other than uh, independently of other services. So with this, you get a fully featured orchestration and traffic routing system that got rid of a lot of the code that we have to write. Uh, there's also much better health checking. So health checking, although they are they do only work at layer seven because the ALB is at layer seven. So if you're currently using a TCP endpoint, you may need to change to just an HTTP, but that's Fairly, fairly simple to do. And you can also customize your health check codes. So if for some reason your application doesn't return a 200, maybe it re returns a 204 or something where ELBs just fell on that a little bit, ALBs can be customized. Uh, so now we've solved the problem of how we route traffic, but we still really haven't talked about how we deploy code. And that's, that's where we're going to spend a little time talking here. Um, repeat, repeatable deployments in cloud is really important to being successful. We're deploying many times a day, and this has to be a reliable process that's automated, really no manual steps. So before we go into the details of how we do deployments with ECS and ALBs in particular, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what deployments at Capital One look like in general. So as a bank with customer-facing applications, we rely on very high availability. And for our most critical applications, we go to multi-region deployments. We do use standard blue-green deployment patterns, where I'll go through that just quickly here, is uh, the blue stack we'll refer to as, as our current stack. And so when we're ready to deploy a new application, the way we typically roll it out is in one region, we'll deploy the green stack. And we'll route some percentage of traffic there for a canary build, typically a small percentage. We'll watch, we'll watch, we'll monitor. We have automated smoke tests that are happening. And once we're happy that this is running successfully and none of the alarms and whistles are going off, we'll do the same thing in the other region. And then same thing, monitor. And then once we're happy with that, we'll start taking down the blue stacks. First blue stack comes down, second blue stack comes down, and now our green stack has become our new application. So this was not too difficult to do with EC2. Uh, some companies have pioneered how to do this and made many tools available. But this isn't really that trivial yet with ALBs and ECS, so I'll talk through how that works. So ECS target groups work uh, using a rolling deployment strategy. So if, when you define an ECS service, you define a task definition, and when you update a task definition, it automatically triggers a new deployment of that particular service. And the way the deployment works is in a rolling fashion, uh, we call it a make one, break one. So we create a new version of that service and delete the old one. New version of the service, delete the old one, and continue until the entire cluster is deleted, uh, updated. Now this is really fine for a lot of simple services. But for large critical applications, this doesn't provide necessarily enough flexibility for what you need. There's no manual gating. There's no canary testing. There's not a really simple way to roll back. So I'm showing a fairly trivial example of three nodes here. Imagine hundreds of nodes and this rolling, and you realize you've pushed out a bad piece of code. Now you're propagating this across. So uh, we still have found ways to work with ECS and do deployments. And that's where I'm going to talk through that here. So this is what we want to do is we have one target group and we create a second target group here. So the second target group we'll call slash beta, slash canary, whatever, whatever you want to call it, name it, whatever you want. But the idea is that there is a second target group running a second copy of the application that has your newer version of it. And then we have our own internal tools 
that will actually route traffic to either the new one or the old one, depending on various criteria, whether it's geolocation, a certain subset of customers, just a percentage. But this is how we do our canary builds. And then once we're satisfied that the canary is successful, uh, we then get rid of the canary, and that becomes the new application itself. We get rid of the old target group, and now all the traffic is routed to slash app. And so that's all controlled by some of our internal deployment tools, and we hope in the future some of those features will be in, uh, integrated into ALBs and ECS directly. So now at this point we have covered uh, traffic routing and deployments, but there's a lot of things that go from your testing in your dev environment to really going to a production scale, all the non-functional requirements things like logging, monitoring, cost analytics, and all the things you need to run this at a really large scale. So Kit's gonna come back and talk here about how we operate the ALBs at scale and how we manage some of those different aspects. Jeff. So as Jeff mentioned, this is all great if it's working as a proof of concept or in your dev or your test environments, but it's really unuseful it all holds up in production. In Capital One, we're running critical applications in the cloud, and we have to worry about a lot of non-functional requirements. For example, security, logging, monitoring, and cost. So, as a bank, security is non-negotiable. All our data has to be encrypted at rest, and traffic has to be encrypted between APIs. ALSBs work at layer seven, so the transport security is going to be provided by HTTPS, which is HTTP over TLS. To achieve that, we configure the listener protocol as HTTPS, and this means that TLS is going to terminate at the application load balancer. So you must serve the X509 certificate from the load balancer, and to do that, you can use either the AWS Certificate Manager, ACM, where everything is managed for you, or you can use the IAM service, where you have to create this certificate yourself and upload it to IAM. A pattern we're often using for internal APIs is to have a single wildcard certificate for all our internal APIs and manage it inside ACM. If you need security, transport level security over to the backend instances, then you have to start another TLS session. Um, and to do that, you set the target protocol in the target group to HTTPS, and then it's going to be your responsibility to ensure that there's an SSL certificate, TLS certificate, on each of the instances or containers, and you have to configure that in the server software. So once we have everything secured, we want to log. Um, ALBs provide access logs very similar to the classic ALBs, so the way that works is that you configure or an API call, or through the console, an S3 bucket, and the service itself writes the access logs to that bucket every five minutes. Format of the log is completely published, um, and each log line is gonna contain details of a single request made through the load balancer, um, both the successful ones, and actually kind of most interesting, the unsuccessful ones. So those are ones that don't make it all the way back to a target. For example, the request is malformed somehow, or in fact, there are no live target instances. So the type field there is going to indicate which protocol the request is for. Um, we've been talking a lot about HTTP and HTTPS, but Peter also mentioned application load balancers support web sockets or the new HTTP 2 protocol. 
the target IRN, AR, group ARN then is going to indicate which target group the request is for. So logging at the load balancer provides us a great way to monitor our services without actually modifying the code of the service implementations themselves. So it's a non-intrusive logging and monitoring point. And using a Lambda, you can imagine parsing the S3. Uh, using a Lambda that's been set up on the S3 bucket, you can imagine writing a Lambda that's going to parse that access log and do something with the information in there. And so what you, what you see there is something that we, we created a serverless monitoring framework where we parse those access logs and push the data to SignalFX, which is a third-party SAS monitoring and alerting tool. And it's great. So we've got everything secured. We're logging. Now we're running. We need to monitor. So the service inside AWS that provides monitoring is, of course, CloudWatch. Uh, using lower-level metrics, we use CloudWatch metrics. So one of the big differences between application load balancers and classic load balancers is that the metrics for application load balancers are provided at the target group. So we can really now see um, statistics for each of the target groups. Previously, they were provided for the load balancers at all, as a whole, and you couldn't really distinguish how each of your individual services was performing. So there are some metrics there that have listed. Most of the metrics um, are shared between classic load balancers and application load balancers, but three of the notable metrics are listed there. And the reason that they're notable is because they feed into the cost model. So the cost models differ slightly between classic load balancers and application load balancers. They both consist of a fixed part and a variable part. For the classic load balancer, there's a base price. That's the fixed part. You pay per load balancer you have set up. And then you pay a variable part based on the amount of data you're transferring through the load balancer. Um, application load balancers follow the same structure as a fixed part, a base price per instance of the application load balancer you have running, uh, and a variable part as well. But the variable part is based on a new concept called the load balancer capacity unit, or LCU. So this is where the three metrics I mentioned on the previous slide feed in. So the LCU is based on those three met dimensions. The number of new connections made to the load balancer per second, the number of active connections you have through the load balancer per minute, and then the bandwidth that's data that's being pumped through the load balancer. So the way the cost model works is metrics are made on each of those three dimensions. They're compared against a published baseline, and then whichever one exceeds the baseline by the larger amount, there's a, an amount there that feeds into the cost model and affects the amount that you're paying for the variable part. Um, according to the Amazon, you're generally going to be charged lower for the same configuration of ALBs you'd have for a classic load balancer. But of course, due to this um, new LCU, your, your mileage may vary. And really, as we've talked about, both in the path-based routing and uh, in, the, in the container part, it's really developer productivity and, and fewer moving parts that really are going to feed much more into the cost over the long term. So like any great service, we love 
load balancers. But it's not 100% perfect yet. Um, there have been some great announcements around ALBs at reInvent, but there's a few things that we find as slight pain points at the moment. So we like to do canary deployments. Jeff mentioned that. And we're doing that via weighted routing at the Route 53 level. If you think about that, that's kind of a load balancing in another AWS component. So if we had a way of doing some weighted load balancing inside application load balancers, we could remove yet another moving part, simplify our deployments, be great. Um, some of our APIs, instead of using a path to distinguish between the services offered, use a different host name. And that host information is, is in the HTTP header. It's in, in the host part of the HTTP header. But right now, the application load balancers don't look at that. So we have to set up two ALBs for those different hosts. Um, and finally, one of our summer APIs actually using X59 client certificates for authentication where the, the client of the API passes a server, a cert, all the way through to the back-end service. Um, the way I describe right now is that TLS is actually terminated at the ALB, and then you start another TLS session by setting the target protocols of HTTPS. That means that that client certificate isn't going to go all the way through to the back-end target. Uh, the way we get around that at the moment is to drop back to the classic load balancers and drop back to layer four, so the transport level, and just set everything as TCP. Then the raw packets flow all the way through the classic load balancer, and the certificate ends up at the, at the instance that's offering the service. So that means we can't use application load balancers when we're using client certificates. So some, some functionality around that would be great. So, in conclusion, we love load balancers. I think you might be getting that message by now. Um, <laughs> because of our API-first developer culture, um, we require load balancing as a service, and we continue to move to ALBs for new services for all the reasons we've discussed, not least of which the great container service integration. And like all AWS services, we only expect it to get better. As it matures, say we've had a number of great announcements around ALB at reInvent, and hopefully we will see more in the future. Thank you very much. <laughs>